is my uh, good fortune to have the opportunity to uh, introduce the uh, main speaker of this afternoon of this lunchtime event. Uh, I'm sure that many of you have heard, have, have read, know a lot about Rabbi Leib Kellerman, who has written a number of books and I think is best known as an outstanding educator, somebody who has taken a leading role in the Chinuch at Neve Yerushalayim, where he is a prominent teacher, and on the public lecture tours, he has been in the United States lecturing, speaking on public radio, on radio shows, talk shows, is a person who has been able to bring a message of Torah to people in our modern lives, in modern society, to bring that message of pure, authentic Torah as he has received from his Rebbeim. The Torah that he gives over, though it be in a vernacular, in a language which can be understood by all, nonetheless remains true to the origins, true to the foundations, true to the message that was given Moshe Rabbeinu at Har Sinai. Many of you know that Reb Leib was a student here at Chappelle Starchinoam for a number of years. I considered it then a schus to be one of his Rebbeim. His insightful questions, his desire and his thirst to learn were key ingredients in propelling him to a great success that he is enjoying as a teacher, as an author, as a lecturer. Chazal tell us in Pirkei Avos, Kol ein that if someone is mezakeh the rabbim, if someone has talmidim, if someone teaches a lot, so then, Akkadosh brings it about that he will not sin. And the Bartanura, the Rav, explains why is it, what's the connection between a mezakeh es harabim ve'en chet bo'al yodo? And the, the Bartanura explains that he, if he has if the teacher would do an Avera, would have Averas, so then he would be in Gehenim and his Talmudim would be in Gan Eden, and that wouldn't be Matim. Ablaib is a Mazakias Arabim, Ain Chait Boal Yodo, and I want to say that I hopefully we at Chappelle's were also Mazakias Arabim, where we have the great pleasure of having a Talmud who is certainly a Ben Olam Haba and will bring us all in his coattails to enjoy sitting in Gan Eden together with him. It's my honor to introduce Rebleib Kellerman. Without doubt, <clears throat> this event, which I've had the privilege of speaking at before, is becoming the most humbling event in my life, where I have to stand in front of my rebbeim and try to say over a Dvar Torah. 
I don't know if I, if, if I uh, still hold the title, but there was a period where having learned at Chappelle's for seven years, I think I was the longest Talmud ever. Uh, I, I just couldn't get out of Rabbi Karlinsky's shear. <laughs> so um, it's really a great honor and a great privilege, and I, uh, I just hope my, uh, my word finds favor in the eyes of my rebbeim. As someone who lives fully, completely immersed in one culture and then very, very, very slowly made a transition into another culture, I see how different the world that I'm living in now is from the world that I came from. There's a tremendous contrast, almost nothing in common essentially, between the world of the Greeks, the world of the West, the world of the Romans, and the world of Torah, with rare exceptions. And it's frightening, therefore, when the pure Torah system is adulterated with values from, from foreign cultures. And I don't know of any area where it happens more often than in the area of relationships. For some reason, Western Greek Roman concepts of relationships roll into our world like a wave onto the beach. And they're thoroughly accepted as being completely Jewish and never questioned. And of course, this is the one area where the damage is, is instantaneous and where the damage lasts for generations. So it could be that more than any other area, it's important for us to understand the esodos of the Torah perspective, which is why I thought maybe today what I would speak about was just a Pasha definition. According to the Torah, what is the definition of love? A Makor to start from is the Gemar and Brachos. Gemar, actually, I learned in this base Midrash, or not in this base Midrash physically, but in this base Midrash spiritually, the base Midrash of Chappelle's, Darche Noam. <coughs> the Gemara in Brachos, page 61b, reads as follows. Tanarabonin, once upon a time, the Romans made a decree that all of Judaism should be forbidden, and the death penalty specifically would be attached to the learning of Torah. And shortly after this decree, this, the curtain comes up on the scene, and Akiva is standing in Times Square. Come, come, let's learn Torah, come! And he's gathering the masses, and the people are gathering around, and Akiva says, come, let's learn. And sitting in front of him is a secularized Jew, Papas ben Yehuda, who looks up at Akiva and he says, Akiva, what are you doing? Don't you know what they're going to do to you? And Akiva looks down on the secular Jew and he says to him, thinking, how am I going to explain? What am I doing? He says to him, what can our situation be compared to? 
We are like a bunch of fish that are darting around inside of a river. And there's a fox walking along the side of the river. And the fox turns to the fish and he says, fish, what are you running away from? And the fish look up and they say, we're running away from the nets that people are trying to throw in on us. And the fox looks down and says, well, you know, maybe you'd like to come up here with me where uh, you could live with me like your ancestors live with my ancestors. And of course, the fish turn to the fox and they say, you're the animal? Are they call the cleverest of animals? You're not clever, you're a fool. If here in the water, which is the place of our life, if here we're afraid, how much more terrified we should be up there with you. A few moments later, the Romans show up. They grab Akiba, they bind him. They drag him off. They throw him into a jail cell. You can imagine the scene. You probably hear is outside the jail cell the sound of banging as they're constructing the torture platform they were going to put him to death on. Moments later, he hears the sound of one, someone being dragged down the, the hallway to this jail cell. They open up the jail cell. They throw in none other than Papas ben Yehuda. Papas, what are you doing here? Akiva, how fortunate are you? For at least you were arrested for learning Torah. I was arrested for nothing. I was just standing next to you. The time comes, they come, they grab Akiva. They pick him up, they carry him out. The students have come to say goodbye to their Rebbe. We can imagine seeing thousands of students arrayed below him. Akiva's up on this torture platform. And they pull out an instrument, Masreko Sobchel Barzel, the way it's described, it seems like it's some sort of a giant potato peeler. And they started his toes and slowly removed the skin from his body until they finally got up to his head. The Gemara tells the story about Akiva's last moments. He must have been hemorrhaging from every part of his body. And the time came to say Kriyat Shema. And as Akiva was getting ready to say Kriyat Shema, he must have been making some sort of emotion indicating he was getting ready. The students looked up at him and they said, Rebbe, what are you doing? And Akiva looked out at them and he said to them, My whole life, my whole life I've been waiting to fulfill the verse. You should love the Lord your God with all your soul. Even if they take your soul. And now I'm not going to fulfill it. Rabbi Kiva started to say Shema. And as he sang Shema Yisrael Shem as he sang Shema, the Torah says, Mara tells us, his soul left with the word one as he said Hashem. The angels in heaven cried out, Zutara, this is Torah, this is its reward. 
a man at age 40 turns his life upside down for Torah. Works, becomes a Balchuva, schleps himself off to Yeshiva, sits and cracks his head on Gemara, learns how to learn, works his way up. Eventually, the guy becomes a Rav, eventually works his way up to a higher Madrega. After 12 years, 12,000 students. After 24 years, 24,000 students. He becomes the Gadol Hador. The angels say, Zu, Torah, Zu, This is Torah and this is its reward? A Baskol cries out from heaven as the scene closes. The Baskol says, How fortunate you are, Bikiva. For you have been invited into Olam Haba. And so the scene ends. It's a moving scene. It's a dramatic scene. And it's a scene that makes absolutely no sense if you analyze it for two minutes. I'll just throw out a couple of kashas. Problem number one. There's a well-known, at least you could call it a minig, perhaps it's even a halacha that because the Torah is a Torah Shabal Peh, the only way you can know it is from a real live Rav, not from a book. And therefore, if a Rav is being mitnaheg in a certain way, is behaving in a certain way because of some halachic concept, because of some Jewish concept, there's a concept, a halacha, that if a Talmud turns to him and says, Rabbi, what are you doing? So the Rav has got the kaf up, chapter and verse. V'shinantam levanecha, al tagam game ba. You have to explain, what are you involved in doing right here? What's strange here is that Rabbi Kiva is asked by a Talmud. Rabbi Kiva was the God Lador, everybody was his Talmud. Papa Ben Yehuda says to him, what are you doing? Don't you know what they're going to do to you? And the Kiva doesn't answer with chapter and verse. He launches into this whole crazy story, a metaphor about a fox and some fish, and a crazy story. What's he talking about? And worse, there was apparently chapter and verse he could have quoted. Everybody knows there's certain things that the Jew has to die for. Shechistamim, Gilearias, Abodazar, everybody knows those things. Most people realize there's other things as well that you have to die for. A not-so-well-known halacha but I believe it's the way that we paskin, is that if the secular government, as part of a campaign to uproot all of Torah, goes after any particular halacha, even a minig, Jews wear a certain kind of shoelaces. Jews wear black shoelaces, let's say. And the secular government, a minig, and the secular government comes and says, they put a gun to your head and they say, you put on the pink shoelaces or we're going to kill you. So normally you could change your shoelaces, but since this is part of a larger campaign to uproot the entire Torah, the halacha is, you say to them, I'm sorry guys, I'd like to help you out. I prefer it if you wouldn't shoot me, but there's nothing that I can do for you here. Aye, it's just shoelaces, but since it's part of a larger campaign, you cannot compromise. Here the Romans had put a decree, anyone who learns Torah will be killed. The guy says to Akiva, what are you doing? Don't you know what they're going to do to you? Why doesn't Akiva just quote chapter and verse? Fulfill the halacha, say. Let me explain, my friend. 
This is part of something larger. I can't compromise. Why doesn't he say that? Explains your Bruchim Levavitz from the mirror. The reason he didn't say that is because in this case there was no such halacha. Why? It's true that if they come and put a gun to your head and they say, stop learning Torah or I'll kill you. So you can't compromise. In this, if it's part of a larger campaign, you can't compromise. But who said Rabbi Akiva had to run out in the public and in public start jumping up and down? Come, let's learn Torah. He could have taught a private share in the base midrash. He could have gathered people in his house. What was he doing in Times Square? That's what Papa Ben Yehuda was asking. Don't you know what they're going to do to you? Crazy? And Rabbi Akiva couldn't answer with a halacha. Explains Rabbi Yehuda because there was no halacha. Because there's no chiv to run out in public and say, watch Romans while I daven Shimon Esrei. Watch Romans while I gather people to learn. There's no such concept. You don't have to do that. And so Rabbi Yehuda concludes that Rabbi Akiva couldn't quote a chapter and verse because there was no halacha and Rabbi Kiva knew exactly what he was doing and he was knew, knew exactly what it was going to lead to. Bekitsur, near La'ain, it appears, Rabbi Kiva committed suicide. And what's more bizarre is that Rabbi Kiva was never criticized ever by any halakh authority for this move. It was entirely accepted, not that we praise him for it. He's held up as a hero. The Gemara in Brachus is considered to be one of, one of the Gemaras that praises him to the ultimate degree. Now I ask you, how in a, in a religion so rooted in love of life, where is there room for suicide? So I'm going to give a very superficial answer to the question. I'm not dealing with the question in detail. There's not enough time today. It's a very deep Gemara. I don't understand the whole Gemara myself. But I'll just give you a superficial idea, something, a handle to grab a hold of, an idea. We don't know very much about a Kodesh Baruch Hu. The little bit that we know, we know because he told us. One of the things the Kodesh Baruch Hu told us was that he created the entire universe in order to love us. We are supposed to be the objects of his affection. And because he wanted us to have the ultimate gift from him, he gave us the opportunity to earn our own eternity. That is, we're not going to eat what we call Namadikisufa. We're not going to eat the bread of shame, charity in Olam Haba. Ella, while we're here in Olam Haza, by keeping the halacha, by acting heroically, we build ourselves into the sort of people that can appreciate and experience the most exquisite eternity possible. How is that? By making ourselves like God. Kaviyachal. Just as God is kind, we try to be kind. Just as God is merciful, we try to become merciful creatures. Just as God is someone who, as far as we know, again, the little bit we understand about him, to his essence, he's a lover and a giver, so too, our job here is to become lovers and givers. Or, to boil down an extraordinarily complex concept into one line, our purpose here on earth is to love and to give. The entire purpose of this world is intimacy, is connection, is relationship. That is the bottom line. That is the whole reason we came here.
to love and to give. Now, there's two possible reasons why you didn't just fall off your chair. One is that somebody said this earlier today. The other possibility is we don't appreciate what this means. But if we appreciated what it meant, it could be that it is so astounding that we would fall off the chair. I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. A few years back, I had just come to work at Neve, and there was a Rob down at the Kotel who he stands around the Kotel, meets Jews who seem like they're lost, and helps them find their way home. And this Rob met a woman who was traveling. She happened to have gone down to the Kotel to visit. She was going through Europe, stopped in Israel. She was the Kotel, and he asked her if she would be interested in, in visiting an Orthodox women's Jewish seminary. And she looked at him and she said, at this, uh, this Orthodox women's seminary, are there, uh, are there Orthodox rabbis there? So he said, uh, yeah, there are. So she looked at him and she said, then I would be very interested in visiting an Orthodox women's seminary. Fine, come with me, I'll take you. Put her into the car, drove her to Nevei Rishalayim. Woman came up into the, into the building. At the time, all the classes were in the middle of session. She said, could I speak to a rabbi? Right, there was no rabbis around, so the rabbi brought her in to see me. So she came and she sat down. And I said, how can I help you? And the woman looked at me very intensely. And she said, tell me something. She said, on Sunday, I'm flying back to the United States, and there I'm going to have a surgery performed. This surgery, an elective surgery, will ensure that I never have children. I'm curious, how do you feel about that? So this was 9 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I said to her, what do you think I'm going to say? So she said, I think you're going to tell me I shouldn't do it. So I said to her, and if you said, if I said what you think I'm going to say, what would you say? <laughs> She's like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Her eyes watered up. She started crying. And she said to me, I, I, I would tell you. I would tell you that you're crazy. What's wrong with you people? Don't you feel the pain? Don't you hear the cries? There's not enough love. There's not enough food. There's not enough water. There's not enough anything. And you want me to bring another kid into this world? What's wrong with you people? She's sobbing. Now it's 9.02. <laughs> I put down my head and I just start to think. And I looked up at her and I said to her, Imagine the following. Imagine that you're a freshman in high school. You just arrived. High school's a fun place. It's not like elementary school. There's lots of exciting things going on. And so while everybody else, right, is out there having a good time, you're looking at everybody having a good time, you think, should I do it? Should I not do it? And it occurs to you, you know what? I have a dream. I want to pursue my dream. So while 3.15, when everybody else gets out, 
and they all go play and have a fun time. At 3.15, you go home and you crack the books. And you open them and you study from 3.15 till 7 every night. Finish off your first year in high school. 3.9 GPA. The dream is getting close. Second year, sophomore year. People are having fun. They're starting to get involved in sports, student government. They're having a great time. But you have a dream. Every day, 3.15 till 9 o'clock at night, you're sitting there in front of the books. Finish off your sophomore year, 4.0. You're on a roll. The dream is getting close. Junior year, the year that counts. People getting their driver's licenses. There's parties all night. Right? This is it. Like, this is the time to have fun. But you have a dream. And so every night till 11 o'clock at night, finish off your junior year, 4.0. SATs. 1,600. <laughs> you file your application. Middle of senior year, you get the note. Congratulations. You've been accepted to University of Michigan. Dream is getting a little bit closer. Get off to U of, U of M. But when you arrive, you find out that the only people who are there are people who've been doing what you've been doing for the last four years. And the competition is pretty stiff. First semester, you stumble. 3.5. Second semester, till 1 o'clock in the morning every night. 4.0, you're back on the roll. Sophomore year, 4.0. Junior year, 4.0. You can taste it. It is so close. MCATs. You file your application. Middle of your senior year, the note comes back. Congratulations. You've been accepted to Harvard Med. You're almost there. You head off to Harvard. At the orientation, they tell you, it's insanity here, we admit. One third of the freshman class will be dropped in the first year. It is absolute craziness. People are up till 2 o'clock in the morning, till 3 o'clock in the morning. No one ever sleeps. It's all day. It's all night. You're eating textbooks for lunch. You slide into final exams. Your hands are shaking. Your eyes are blurring. Finals go on for a week, then you sleep for two weeks. They post the names of those people who survived. You go down to the, the hall where the names are posted. It's been nine long years. For nine years you've been waiting for this. But when you walk into that hall, you start scanning the names. you realize that after nine years, there's my name, <laughs> made it. <laughs> Second year, last year of coursework. They tell you they're gonna drop another third. It's insanity, all day, all night, four in the morning, five in the morning, half an hour here asleep, half an hour there asleep, right? Coffee, IV, you know, like anything that works. <laughs> they post the names at the end of the year, you walk in, there's my name, I got it. Two years of clinical work, 24-hour shifts in the hospital, 48-hour shifts, 72-hour shifts. It's been 12 long years. Internship, residency, 16 years. I can't believe it's over. 16 years. I can't believe I'm suiting up. I'm about to taste it. I, I'm about to walk through those double doors and take in as the chief physician 
of the Yale University emergency room. I said, I can't believe it. And as you walk out of the locker room, you start heading towards those double doors. You're walking towards those double doors. This is it. The dream is about to come true. As you're walking towards those double doors, they burst open. A man walks out, another physician, and he's crying. What's wrong? He's crying. Oh my God, it's terrible. It's terrible. What's wrong? He says, it's a nightmare. What's a nightmare? He says, there's people in there. He says, they have limbs hanging off. He says, there's gunshot wounds. There's stab wounds. There's people crying. He says, my God, it's a nightmare in there. And you look at the man like he's crazy. And you say to him, my friend, that's not a nightmare. That, that's my dream. And you walk through the double doors and you start healing people. I looked up at this lady and I said to her, if you came here to take, this world is a nightmare. There's not enough food. There's not enough water. There's not enough love. Everybody needs somebody to talk to. Everybody needs a friend, a shoulder to cry on. But if you came here to give, this world is a dream. If you start thinking that this whole world is about giving and loving, then suddenly the world looks upside down. Everything is upside down and backwards. The worst nightmares become our dream. The most horrible situations on the planet become an opportunity to give. By the way, I don't know the PS on the story. She left that day, she left Neve Rishalim, and she got on a plane and she flew back to America. I do know one detail, which is she sent me a postcard when she had her first child. Beyond that, I don't know. I'd love to be able to tell you she married a man in Kolel, but uh, <laughs> I don't know the end of the story. What does it mean that we're here to give? So, you realize, I'm sure someone has mentioned by now, in Hebrew, there is no word for love. What do I mean? If you pull aside a woman on the street, and you say to her, excuse me, do you love him? So she understands what you're talking about, and therefore she has to stop and she has to ask herself some questions. Let's see, do I love him? Well... Do I enjoy his company? Do I like to be with him? Is he the kind of person that I think would make me happy? She has to ask herself all these questions. I, I, I. Me, me, me. What will this relationship do for me? That's love. But if you pull aside a firm lady on the street and you say to her, excuse me, uh, could you tell me something? Do you feel Ava for this person? She too has to stop and ask herself some questions, but they're very different questions. First she'll say, well, let's see, what is Ava? Well, let's see, all Hebrew words are two-letter or three-letter roots. So let's see, what's this word, Ava? So let's see, that's the word Hav. Hav means give. Ahav, that's I will give. Ahava, that's I will giveness. A state where all I want to do is let go of what I want for the sake of the other. Okay, now let me ask... How much am I willing to let go of what I want for this guy's sake? How much am I willing to make his priorities my priorities? How much am I willing to be mavater, to let go for his sake? He 
him, him, him. Not me, me, me. See, there is no word love in Hebrew. Maybe it's, I don't know, selfishness. Maybe that would be the word. But Ava, that's something completely different. And you see how a concept like love could easily slip in. A Roman Western concept could easily slip into Jewish vocabulary and completely adulterate our worldview. And we use this word without even thinking about what we're saying. Now, if that's the definition of love, if the definition of love is letting go of what you want for the sake of the other, and wanting to do that, so then that should change the definition of marriage. And sure enough, there is no Hebrew word for marriage. Now, if you take the word marriage, you look it up in the Oxford English Dictionary, you'll find that marriage is, quote, there's a few definitions there, my favorite, a merger of two or more corporate entities. <laughs> there's a famous Hebrew saying, Zelo accident. Why do we say that that's a marriage? Because that's what a marriage is. A marriage is you have two people who each would benefit greatly by getting together. They'll each take mutual responsibilities. I'll take out the trash. You do the dishes. I'll bring home the money. You raise the kids. It's what my Rebbe calls a mutually parasitic relationship. This is a great, a great, a great secular marriage. These people aren't abusing each other. He always brings home the money. She always takes care of the kids. He always takes out the trash. He's a great husband. Doesn't bother his wife. Doesn't make her miserable. Does nice things for her. After all, you've got to keep the employees happy. It's a great secular marriage. Halavai, the people that I counsel would have such marriages. Halavai. A great secular marriage is a 50-50 deal. I'll do for you if you'll do for me. It's a business arrangement. And you understand based on that why so many marriages fail. Because a business arrangement remains as long as both parties dish up their half of the arrangement. But businesses will rarely last a lifetime. Because at some point, the people who you're doing business with might disappoint you. And the minute they break the contract, so what are you doing business with them for? You're not getting anything out of it anymore. I'm doing the dishes, I'm taking out the trash, I'm bringing home the money, and I'm taking care of the kids. Where's my spouse? What's going on here? Another great Hebrew saying, Zelo fair. <laughs> so as soon as they break the contract, you dissolve the business, you get a divorce. What's amazing is the divorce rate is only holding at like 50, 54%. That's astounding. You realize that most people are reliable for a long time until they blow it and their partner cuts their head off? That's astounding. We have no word marriage. What do we have? We have preparation for marriage, kedushin, that's a whole schmooze in itself. And then the marriage itself, which is called nisuin, then you're married. My Rebbe pointed out to me. He said the word nisuin does not mean marriage. The root of the word nesuin is the word nose, which means to carry. Nesuin is the plural. Carryings. We have no marriage, we have carryings. I asked my what's carryings? He said, it's an arrangement where you walk underneath a chuppah. You pick your beloved spouse up and you say to her, no matter how heavy you get, I won't put you down. It's a promise that no matter what happens, 
I'll carry it. Nisuin is carryings. It's not a 50-50 deal. If you do this for me, then I will do that for you. That's not what it is. It's a 100-100 deal. It's that I want to take out the trash and I want to do the dishes. And I want to bring home the money and I want to take care of the kids. Unless you don't like that, in which case then we can talk and I'll do whatever's good for you. Because my job in life is to love you. To take care of you. To make sure that you're happy. To make sure that you're thriving. To make sure that your potential is brought forth. That's my job in life. I remember as a kid, I was suspended from high school several times until they finally expelled me. <clears throat> and I remember when I was finally expelled, I came home and I had to explain to my parents what had just happened. And I remember I walked up the stairs and I went to my father's door and I remember I knocked on the door. My father, it wasn't a bad thing I did. I don't think it was a bad thing. But anyway, I knocked on the door and, 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 and my father, you know, so he was standing there and I, I opened the door and he said, come in. I, and I said, I said, Dad... I, I really need some help. He said, what do you mean? Now, there's no way I can get this without him. So I said, I told him the whole thing, everything I had done, right? And I expected, you know, that he was going to, like, gasp or something. And I said, and I, I quickly got out, Dad, can you get me back into school? Can you help me out here? And I, I'll never forget, it burned an image into my mind. I can see the picture of my father turning towards me. And he said to me, Lay, that's what I'm here for. That's Avo. That's what I'm here for. I exist to take care of you. That's Ava. Now, once you have these very Jewish definitions of love and marriage under your belt, then the world changes considerably and the story of Akiba starts to make a little bit more sense. Go back to the beginning of the story. Akiva gets up, he starts teaching Torah. Papa Spanyuda turns to him and says, what are you doing, Akiva? Don't you know what they're going to do to you? Essentially, he was saying, Akiva, this is going to hurt a lot. Are you sure you want to go down this path? I mean, what's the benefit to you? What are you going to get out of it? It could be very painful. And Akiva turned to this fellow and said, how am I supposed to explain to you what I'm doing? You who think that life is about a two-car garage, a house in the Poconos, good ski vacations and a nice retirement. If you think that's what life is about, how am I supposed to explain to you what I'm doing? Because for us, that's not life. Akiva said, life is not indicated by heartbeat and respiratory activity. Life is indicated by the level of Ava you're experiencing. For anyone who's truly been in love, you know exactly what I'm talking about. When there's someone in your life who fills your head, there's nobody else, there's only them, and all you want to do is take care of them and give to them and love them. When it keeps occurring to you, like, what can I buy her? Like, maybe she'd like flowers? No, I, oh, I know I can surprise her. Oh, this will be a great surprise for her. You know, she didn't say anything about this, but I know this would make her happy. When this is the way that you live your life, then you understand what it's like to be alive. Okay, life is life. Sometimes we lose contact with those people who we love very much. For anyone who's ever lost contact with someone that they love very, very, very much, they understand what death is. 
Yes, my heart's still beating. Sure, I'm respirating, but this is not called life. This is called death. And you feel it to the core that you're dead. And Akiva looked at him and said, how am I supposed to explain to you? So he started, he gave a try. He said, my friend, we're like fish that are swimming around in a river. The water is always a metaphor for Torah. And the Torah is a system for becoming a person capable of intimacy, capable of closeness, intimacy with yourself, intimacy with a spouse, a real closeness to Kodesh Baruch Hu. That's what life is about. That's what Torah is about. And he said, here, at least we've got Torah. You want me to come out there with you where it's a little bit more comfortable? For what? And I should give up Torah and I should give up the system for falling in love? For becoming a person, a person capable of getting out of my selfishness? What do you think, I'm crazy? If here in the water we're afraid, how much more so up there should we be terrified? Those of us who lived in that, that secular world with the foxes, we are in no hurry to get out of the water again. That's a very scary place. Imagine the following metaphor. It's 16th century Poland. And there's a blizzard outside. I'm sitting in my kitchen. My wife is in the other room painting. My wife, by the way, is an artist. She's been an artist since I met her. And I mean, I, when I say an artist, I mean an artist to the core. This lady, she loves to paint. Yeah? She's taking telephone messages. She's sitting there painting. She's always painting. She especially loves to paint flowers. Okay, whatever. People have different personalities. My wife loves to paint flowers. Her favorite thing to paint in the whole world are roses. But my wife has never seen a rose because we live in 16th century Poland. And as this blizzard is going on, I start rubbing the window in the kitchen. Oh my God, I, I, I think I see a man out there. He could die in a blizzard. I go for the door, my cousin yells to me, where are you going? I said, I'm going to go save this guy. This guy could die out there. My cousin says, you're going to die out there. I open up the door, I get a chair, I start climbing out. I'm going out through the door, climbing over the snow. I go running through the snow. I see this guy in the middle of the blizzard. Between the snow, I can tell the waves of snow. I see some guy who's walking through four feet of snow, holding something above his head. And as I walk, I can't see exactly what it is. And I say, hey, what are you doing? And the guy yells back to me, I'm a flower salesman from Italy. <laughs> so what are you crazy? You're going to die out here. What are you doing? So I'm selling flowers. I run up to the guy. When I get to him, Right? He's got this glistening thing above his head. I said, what's that? He says, a dozen long stems. I said, how much you want for those things? <laughs> he says, buddy, it's going to cost you. I walked from Italy. <laughs> so what do you want? He says, 50 bucks a stem. I start peeling off right, the 50 bucks a stem. My cousin catches up with me. What are you two crazy people doing out here? I said, I'm buying some flowers. He says, how much does you want for me? I said, 50 bucks a stem. He says, that's a ripoff. Don't pay that. <laughs> I turned to my cousin. 
And I say to him, are you crazy? 30 years I've been married to this lady. For 30 years, I've been waiting to buy her the long stems. And now I'm not going to buy them for her. Akiva gets arrested, gets thrown to jail, is brought up in front of his platform. And Akiva knows something that very few people in the secular world know. Most people in the secular world know that when someone gives you something, you feel very good. It's nice. But most people in the secular world don't realize that when you give to somebody else, you create love. And the more that you let go of what you want, the more that you really give, not only the easier it becomes, but the more exquisite the sensation that it produces. Until eventually, you can push your level up of love so high that there's nothing in the way. Imagine the following scene. Guy sitting in his kitchen. Looks over, his wife is sitting at the table, she's rubbing her temples. He says, sweetie, what's wrong? She says, oh man, my head is splitting. Guy has an asylum. He now has to sacrifice. Does he have enough love inside? Has he made himself into a person with enough ava that he can actually sacrifice and stand up out of his chair, walk across the room, walk over to the cabinet, open up the cabinet, see if there's any aspirin? He passes the test. He gets up, he walks over, he opens the cabinet. There's the aspirin right there. He reaches in. He... Oh, man. It's empty. Nunasayam. Does he have enough love to get into the car, drive down to the pharmacy, and get her the rest of the aspirin? Let's say he passes the asylum. What happens if it's something more than that? What happens if she doesn't need an aspirin? What happens if what she needs is a kidney? It's a frightening question. Do I have enough love? Say, yeah, yeah, no problem. Take my kidney. No big deal. Go ahead. More frightening, what if it's more than a kidney? What if there's a small child who's in mortal danger? He's going to die unless I do something to save him. But the only way for me to save him is to stick my arm through the spinning wheel in front of him, knowing I'm going to lose my arm. Do I have enough love inside to let go of my arm? This is very frightening because this is already starting to touch home. Who knows what the answer to that question is? I don't know. It's a Do I love anybody enough to give everything? To give my whole life? Akiva pushed it to the, to the end. He pushed the envelope to the edge. He's the semel of Ava in the Torah. The Ahaftal Reach Kamoazu Klal Gadol Torah. He is Mr. Ava. And he lived that life. Letting go of what he wanted, step after step after step. Pushing up the level of love inside until he'd almost pinned it. There was just one thing left that he hadn't given it, and that was everything. And the moment came. And knowing exactly what was going to happen, he ran out in public. 
And out in public, he started teaching Torah. Come, let's learn. And the students, when they saw him being tortured to death, and he was about to say Shema, they said to him, Rebbe Adkan, what do you say Shema for? You all know there's a well-known halacha. There's times when a man is potter from Shema. At least according to Ikra Din. I don't think we're no egg this way. But if a man is extraordinarily distracted, we call it tir to the mitzvah. If he's incredibly distracted, an extraordinary state of distraction. In this state, according to the letter of the law, we don't pass in this way, but according to the letter of the law, or even we pass this way, we're not knowing this way, but even according to the letter of the law, he does not have to say Shema that night. And the student said to him, Rebbe, what greater distraction could there be than this? Your skin is laying on the ground in pieces. You're on the edge of death. What are you saying Shema for? And Akiva looked at his cousin. And he said, now I'm not going to buy her the roses. My whole life I've been waiting for this moment and now I'm not going to buy her the roses? This is the climax of a life's work. To sacrifice to the nth degree. Messiris Nefesh. The Balei Musar often equate with a Voda, which they equate with love. And so Akiva began to sing, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem. And his voice, his soul went out with the word one. The angels cried out, Zutor v'zuschara! This is torn, this is reward! My Rebbe said to me, um, Labe, that's not how you read the line. I, I, I said, it says, Zutor v'zuschara. He said, yeah, yeah, that's the words, but the wrong intonation. So how do you read the line? He said, the angels cried out. Zutora. Zutora, Torah, system for falling in love. A system for practicing letting go of what you want for the sake of somebody else. Zutora. The Zuschara. This is its reward. If all you want is the opportunity to take care of somebody else, to let go of what you want for the sake of somebody else, Hashem will provide the opportunity. All you want is to love a spouse, Hashem will provide the opportunity. You just want to let go of what you want and take care of some kids? Biological or adopted, Hashem will provide the opportunity. If all you want is to love and to give, to fulfill the purpose of the universe, if all you want is Torah, to let go of what you want, then Hashem will provide the opportunity to sacrifice. And as high as you want to go on the scale, that's how high He will carry you. Ah, Zutor Zuschara. Kodesh Baruch cried out, the Baskol, 
Welcome, Rabbi Kiva. You've been invited to the front row in the next world. Because in the next world, all the madregas, all the levels determined by who you become in this world. Most religions who have a concept of an afterlife, they have a crazy concept of some sort of synthetic payment that you receive when you, when you arrive there. Yeah, you did, uh, you know, 400 Hail Marys, and so, you know, you get this reward. Right? Become a Muslim, you know, you know this many virgins in a waterbed. Our concept is not like that. We have no concept of synthetic reward. I hire a guy to build me a piano. He works for a month on it. A baby grand. I come to pay him at the end of the month. I say, how much would you like for that? He says, it's a nice baby grand. Yeah, I said, yeah, it's beautiful. He says, I want fair payment. I say, no problem. What do you want, 30 bucks? He says, Kellerman, I want fair payment. I say, okay, I just don't know what the going prices are. With 30 days, you want 300 bucks? No, 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 I want fair payment. Ooh, that's getting expensive. What do you want, 3,000? Kellerman, it's a baby grand. 30,000? Mr. Kellerman, I, I, I heard that you were an honest person. What, what, what's going on here? So what do you want, 3 million? 30 million? What, what are you asking for? Guy says to me, I want fair payment. There's only one fair payment for a piano. The fair payment for a piano is, you built the piano, enjoy the piano, it's yours. If you did a good job, you'll enjoy every key. And if you were ever lazy in the construction, you'll experience that too. We get fair payment. When we get to the next world, we get to experience who we are. And since God is pure love, when we get there, if we worked on ourselves, that we can experience what it's like to connect, to let go of what we want for something else. True intimacy, real closeness. And if I lived a selfish life here, that's what I experienced there too. Isolation and aloneness. Some people might call that a Gehenna. I'll conclude with something concrete, something practical. We came here to form essentially three relationships. Ben Adam L'Atzmo, Ben Adam L'Chadero, Ben Adam L'Mako. Between us and ourselves, the shaman and guf, between us and other people, especially a spouse, and finally between us and, of course, Baruch question is how to fall in love, so to speak. How to create real avo. So we know the system. The system is letting go of what you want. I won't say the number one, but certainly it's up there in the top three problems that I counsel for today are low self-esteem. Let's admit, what is low self-esteem? Low self-esteem is, I don't love myself. Or another way of saying that is, my goof doesn't love my neshama, my neshama doesn't love my goof. Now, if people understood the whole problem is lack of love, lack of ava, and they understood the formula for getting to ava is let go of what you want, then the formula for working on self-esteem is obvious, and it's very different than the formula recommended by most psychologists. Give the person compliments, build them up, make them feel good about themselves. Shtus, that's not going to make them love themselves. Because love is produced by letting go of what you want. You don't love your goof. So let go of what you want. Give your goof what it needs. Give your goof eight hours of sleep. 
I know this is like a crazy thing to say in the 21st century when, you know, we've been taught by Western culture to abuse our bodies to the end. Right? And you know, you brag about it. I did it on two hours. I did it on one hour. I had four heart attacks. Look at this, yeah? <laughs> I always say to people, it's amazing how nice I am after I've had eight hours of sleep. If you had a kid who you loved very much, would you give him for breakfast coffee and a donut? But I do that to my body all the time. I engage in all sorts of abuse. And I feel heroic about it. Let's see how badly I can treat myself. Let's see how little tour I can give my body. Let's see how long I can stretch it abusing myself. What a hero I am. I haven't heard of Gamora Sheer in 50 years. Whoa! And I feel like I'm a terrific guy. Because I've been trained by the West that abuse is a good thing. Put on a cowboy hat and get on a Marlboro horse. And you're a terrific person. And of course, that's upside down and backwards. Try to take care of the goof a little bit. Give it what it needs physically. Give it what it needs spiritually. See if the self-esteem changes. It's astounding what will happen. I often put a challenge to my students. Give me 30 days with proper food, sleep, and clothing. Then let's talk about self-esteem. I've never had a student come back and say, nothing changed. Never. Because if you let go of what you want to give to the other, you take care of your body a little bit and give it what it needs, not what it wants, but what it needs. You'll be astounded at how much love can be developed. Go up a state between me and my spouse. I've heard many people say, I don't love her. At one point I loved her, but now I don't love her. Why don't you love her? He says, she doesn't do this for me, she doesn't do that for me, she doesn't do that for me. And tell me something, when you did love her, describe your life. Yeah, when I loved her, I was always running after her, doing things for her, trying to, to get her to marry me. I was always doing this for her and that for her. You understand? You don't need to have a PhD in psychology. It's obvious, the more that you let go of what you want, the more you'll love the other. There is a line called abuse. You have to have your head screwed on straight enough to know what that line is. And if not, you have to be in contact with Rebbeim and Rebbitsons who know that line. But the reason that relationships fall apart is not because people are abusing each other as much as they're just not giving to each other. I like Mexican food. She always wants to go to the Italian restaurant. What about me? And of course, she ends up forever unhappy. Finally, this is one of the complaints that I do get the most from my students is, okay, I can believe in God. It's difficult, but I can believe in him. When I see the sorts of tragedies that happen all around me, I can even fear him. But how am I supposed to love him? And don't tell me all the nice things that he did for me, because I'm aware of all the nice things that he did for me, but he's still like some faraway spiritual creature. How am I supposed to love him? How can I love someone I can't see, I can't touch, I can't feel? So I right away show them that the problem is not that you can't see him, can't, can't, can't touch him, and, can't, feel, and can't, 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 can't have physical contact. That's not the problem. I'll prove it to you in 10 seconds. Play a little mind game for a minute. For a moment, <coughs> conjure up in your face, conjure up in your mind the face of somebody who you see occasionally. Not someone who you see very often, not someone you're especially emotionally involved with, perhaps someone that you met on the, on the Archikala. Okay, picture their face now for a minute, just picture their forehead, picture their eyes, cheeks, nose, 
Yeah, see the face in front of you? Fine. Now, wipe that face out from in front of you. Think for a minute about the person who you love most in this world, the person that you love more than anybody else on the whole planet, the person you have the most intense feelings for. Now try to conjure up their face in front of you. Most people can't do it for a very good reason. And that is, you probably haven't seen their face in a very long time because you don't look at their body. You look right past, through their eyes, to their neshama. It's a relationship neshama to neshama. That's why you can't picture their face. It might have been 20 years since you've seen this person's face. Avram Avinu experienced the exact same thing and hadn't seen Sarah. If you relate to someone in the deepest way, you might not see them physically. And yet you can have incredibly powerful feelings towards them. And I, what about if you're cut off contact with them? As long as you know that they're taking care of you, you know that they're still doing things for you, you know that they're there, you can have very powerful feelings. So why is it that we don't love God? Ulai, it's because I'm waiting to sacrifice until I love him. So I make a concrete recommendation that if we would take little tiny things, things that are very small, very easy, and every now and then do something which is difficult for us, but something small and easy, and then do that consistently for a period. So that could move us into a state of Ava. I remember hearing the story about how when Rav Shach, it was, it was already when he was, he was an older man, Rav Shach Zatzal, he took on for one of his Yom Kippur Kabbalahs, he was going to bench from a bencher. I think only when he was in his house, he took on the Kabbalah. A little bit of a sacrifice to actually look at the words. That can create a lot of Ava. I'll leave with uh, a bakasha from Kodesh Baruch Hu. Just plead a little bit on behalf of, of all of us, on behalf of all the people the Yarche Kala, on behalf of all of Kleistro. There's so many people who are trying so hard and we're in such a bad situation. We feel like we live in such a loveless world, in such an alone world. Please tell Baruch that he should, he should help us with Chassad and Tovi get back on track. Realize the secular concept of love is totally corrupt and not worth pursuing at all. That all we really want is Ava. Help us discover that, Kodesh Baruch Hu. And please continue to give us the teachers and the guidance that will move us in that direction. So that, we should soon see Mashiach be here of Yemen. Okay, don't get too informal. We have uh, some logistics in order that we can get relatively smoothly to the next part of the program. The next part of the program is going to be using the dining room and the Beit Midrash. So it's going to take some work, as you can see, in order to break down the tables here and get everything properly set up. In addition to